Uh, we are going to share in the Lord's Supper uh, towards the end of our time together this morning. If you're unfamiliar with it, or maybe you're familiar with it, uh, this is in there uh, just to describe that, and so I really won't walk us through that when we get there. Um, we'll respond to the Lord's invitation to come. Um, and some of you who grew up in the church may be aware that it is not something to do in a hasty or an unworthy way. In other words, if there's some particular sin in your life that you're holding on to, that you're better off not partaking because uh, you can be drinking and eating damnation to your life. And Paul said that's the reason some of you are sick. That's the reason some of you have actually had your physical life taken from you. And, uh, and yet, the point of the Lord's Supper is not to not partake because of that. The point of the Lord's Supper is look at how good and great and how much the Lord loves you. Turn from that in this moment and come and partake. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and so, and the backside is, is addresses that more. And so, um, it's just a manifestation of everything that we've sung about, of His great love and faithfulness to us, and in light of that, to release everything else to live in His love. We're in Philippians, the book of Philippians, and so if you would grab something and turn over there, Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we have said that Paul writes this letter. He's sitting in uh, a prison or under house arrest. Either way, he's chained to a soldier 24-7 in the city of Rome, and he writes this letter back to probably his closest church. Now, it wasn't the church that originally sent him out, uh, but it seems that this was the people that he had the closest relationship with over the years. It is a church that he started in a fairly dramatic way. We looked at that, of going out to that prayer meeting that the women had gathered out at the river, and Lydia and her household responded in faith. He got irritated because some demon-possessed girl kept following them around and saying, uh, they are telling the true way to the kingdom of God, so he cast the demon out of her, and then he gets thrown in jail because of that, because he took away their means of profit, and uh, he's in jail, and God causes an earthquake. Uh, the prisoners don't escape. The, pri uh, the jail guy in charge of the jail is ready to take his life. He says, don't take your life. We're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. They were. Thus the church in Philippi began. Not a bad beginning, would you say? Bunch of really screwed up people come to Christ. Sounds like Calvary Baptist in so many ways, doesn't it? And, uh, and so, and they just continued this relationship with the Apostle Paul over the years. So, he writes this letter to them. It begins with a fairly typical greeting there in the first few verses. And then in verses 3, really down through verse 11, he writes to them and just reminds them of why they have this great relationship. And he says, we're fellow participants of the gospel, of God's grace to us. We share in that. That's what we have in common. And we have been participating in getting the gospel out to other people as well. And then he goes on and he says, here's what I'm praying for you. I pray that uh, the love, the agape love in your heart would abound more and more according to true knowledge with all discernment, so you'd be able to discern so that you can approve and choose that which is excellent. And then he goes on and says some of the fruit that comes out of a life that chooses what is excellent. Last week, we jumped into verses 12 down through verse 18 down there. And in those verses, uh, Paul talks about and tells uh, his, his dear brothers and sisters in Philippi who, by the way, were probably wondering why God hadn't gotten him out of jail in Rome like he had in Philippi. Isn't it amazing? Once we experience the way God works in our life one time, we expect it to go like that from then on. Um, and so, you know, he got out of jail. I mean, he was beat pretty bad, singing psalms and hymns, but he got out before the sun came up. Now he's been in prison for over two years. 
Wouldn't it be easy for the Philippians to think, God, what's wrong? Why aren't you releasing Paul? Is something wrong in his life? Right? Don't we think like this, right? And, and so Paul writes back and says, nothing's wrong. I want you to know that my being in prison has worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's worked out because I've reached an unreached group of people, the, the meanest, nastiest people in the whole Roman Empire, the Praetorian Guard. They're chained to me 24-7. I have a captive audience, and I've gotten the gospel to people who would never have anything to do with me. Besides that, the believers in Rome, because Rome's a tough place to be a witness for Christ, They see me being bold, chained to a Roman soldier, and now they're emboldened to share the gospel with their friends and family. They're 8 to 15. And so that's going on. He says, and you know, there's some people who don't understand that what I'm doing in preaching the gospel and writing letters like the book of Romans and stuff is because God has commissioned me to do this. They see me as a competitor. And once I got thrown in jail, they thought, He's in jail, let's get out and let's promote our ministries. And he says, they may be doing out of spite and envy and all kinds of those things, but they're preaching the gospel of Christ, and because of that, I rejoice. Verse 18, and in this, well, let's read verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So we walked through all of that last week. And then in the middle of 18 at the end, you you know that they put in these verse markings way late, so they're not inspired. The text is inspired, not the chapters and verse numbers. And this is one place where they probably didn't put it in the right spot because it begins a new sentence. He says, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, what's going on here in this transition? Well, probably a couple things. Uh, let me just read something to you that one of the uh, commentaries said. It says, this is certainly an intriguing repetition, and it's, inf- and it's emphatic and abrupt character. Paul crushes the feeling of personal annoyance, which rises up at the thought of this unscrupulous antagonism. He goes on to say, though, we would go too far if we imagined Paul gritting his teeth as he speaks of rejoicing. But we may be sure that his joyful response was not natural and easy. And certainly that would be true, wouldn't it? Uh, A supernatural response to choose to see the gospel and the gospel getting out even if they're doing it in spite and to try to hurt you, is a whole adjustment of value system. And so we talked about that quite a bit last week. But there's also a transition that goes on here because not only does he say the gospel of Christ is getting out, so Philippians and believers even at Calvary Baptist this morning understand that how my circumstances have turned out, verse 12, have turned out for the progress of the gospel, now he's going to turn it and say it's worked out even for my good personally. It just hasn't helped the gospel get out. There's things going on that are good in my own life. And so it's almost as if he says, I rejoice in that the gospel's going out, whether it's in spite or out of true love. But uh, yes, I will even rejoice because good things are going on with me. And that's what we want to look at this morning down through verse 26. And so let's just pick it up there in that phrase and let's read down through verse 26. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound to Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's pray together. In the Spirit of God, we pray that you would cause the love of God to abound even more and more in each of our hearts according to the knowledge that comes through this, your word. And we're so grateful for what you're going to do. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So what I have done is I've tried to take this passage and I put it into a little diagram that is on the backside of your notes. And, um, and because what Paul does here is he kind of lets the Philippians into what rolls around in his head uh, and what comes out of his mouth. What came out of his mouth? Yes, I will rejoice. How can that come out of your mouth, Paul? Because of what is going on inside of his head. And so let's just kind of work our way down through this. And you can see that the very first thing there that he says in verse 19 is, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And so he says, for I know. Paul is absolutely convinced of something He knows something beyond any shadow of a doubt, and it is that that his current circumstances will turn out. This is the same phrase that he used back in verse 12, describing how his circumstances turned out for the progress of the gospel. But now he says, I know it will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance can also be translated salvation. Now, here's the trick with the word deliverance or salvation, is that it can be taken two different ways. It can be taken as a temporal deliverance from Roman prison, so he can pick up his ministry, go back and visit the Philippians and other people, maybe go to Spain and other places like he wanted to do, or the word salvation can be used of getting out of this world, his life physically coming to an end, and the fullness of his salvation, his glorification, will be accomplished. So the word can be taken either way. So the question for us is what? Which way do we take it? Which way is intended in this particular passage? And as we just read the passage, we noticed what? It's used in both ways. And so there seems to be an intentional double use of the word deliverance. So let's just draw a line in my, Paul's brain. And, and he makes this real clear, well, in a lot of places, but at the very end of verse 20, he says, whether by life or by death. And so, life would be a deliverance from prison so that he can continue to to minister. Death would be that the Roman government would execute him, and he would be saved by going to heaven to be with the Lord. And that becomes very, very clear in the following passage here. So, he says, either life or death. Either way, it's an issue of me being delivered, me being saved. Now, he goes on and captures it in verse 21. Oh, oh by the way, let me just pause here for a minute, uh, because sometimes we get so familiar with the New Testament, um, and hopefully you're one of those that's not, quite frankly, that you're just moving into this thing. Um, but let me just read something else here. When he says life and death at the end of verse 20, he says such a perspective is jarring, not merely to someone unacquainted with the Scriptures, but even to a believer who may have noticed the repeated Old Testament references depicting divine blessing in terms of physical safety from enemies and deliverance from death. 
the point is being made here that you read through the Old Testament, and it seems that life and delivery from disease, delivery from enemies, delivery from death is always communicated as God's blessing. And Paul is rattling a cage here when he throws in death and even is going to say death is more desirable. And so there's something really radical that goes on here. Um, Paul's explanation does not express hope in spite of death, but rather focuses on death as the more advantageous alternative. Now, Having said that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for health and safety and those kinds of things, okay? That is not what he is suggesting here. Um, But when health and safety become an idol that get in the way of a true and full worship of God and a trust of Him as the Apostle Paul has here, then we are in big trouble. And I still remember Pastor Sumbut from Indonesia coming probably 10 or 12 years ago and saying one of the great idols in American culture is safety, which doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be safe. does mean we shouldn't worship safety because a worship of safety will prevent people from doing a lot of things in the cause of Christ. So anyway... Uh, when he says life or death here, and this is going on in his mind, this is a very radical shift from the way we often think. So he summarizes it and captures it in probably a verse that many of you have memorized, verse 21. Paul says, for to me, to me, personal application here, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of you memorized that? Yeah, a lot of you. And, uh, and so it's just a summary of, of what goes on in his head. For me personally, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, he goes on and describes that even more in the following verses. He says, for me to live in Christ would be fruitful labor for me, right? Verse 22, fruitful labor for me. What do you mean by that, Paul? What he means by that is that it will give him more opportunities to know Christ. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, I count all things in loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One of the great quests of the Apostle Paul's life was to know Christ better. And as he knew Christ better, he would be transformed more into the likeness of Christ, and he would help other people know Christ better, right? Know Christ, make Christ known. He says, that is fruitful. It's labor, though, isn't it? And so he says, that is fruitful labor for me. There's a personal benefit of me of knowing Christ and making Christ known. And so that is fruitful labor for me. But, he says, to die is gain because I get to depart. Depart's really a cool word because Paul was a tent maker. The word depart was used to take down or to strike a tent when you move from one location to another location. And often our bodies are described as tents. Why? Because they are the temporary place where we live. And in fact, the military still uses tents. Why? Because there's a war going on. And it gives you the ability to be mobile and to uh, move about, and there's always a recognition of the temporary. And Paul says to depart, to strike this tent to strike my physical body and get a new tent, a resurrected body, is gain. It is gain. It's the ultimate gain, isn't it? Because then to be present with Christ, to to, to live, man, that's fruitful labor for me. I get to know Christ and make Him known. But man, to depart 
and to be present with Christ? Oh, do you see the word labor in that one at all? No, there's only labor over here. And so to depart and to be with Christ. And he goes on to say, in the next verse down, he goes on to say, to die is gain, to depart and be with Christ. That is, he says what? Very much better. Now that's horrible grammar. But you get the point, right? You just, you just lump one uh, descriptive term on top of another. Because how do you describe heaven? How do you describe being with Christ? Well, you just put a bunch of superlatives on there. And so he says, very much better for who? For me. Paul says, for me, very much better. But he says, to live as Christ, because it's fruitful labor, I get to bear fruit. And quite frankly, Philippians, it's more necessary for you. You need help. I think I can help you. He goes on to elaborate on that some in verses 25 and 26. In fact, he's so convinced of the help that they need and his ability to give the help that he's convinced he's going to get out of jail. He just sees himself as having a unique role in their life. Look at verse 25. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's a great twin couple verse, uh, couple descriptions there together, isn't it? Not just your progress in the gospel, but your progress in what? And joy. Progress and joy in faith. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, this is a little bit of a difficult verse, and if you have... Uh, the ESV or some of the other translations, it will say, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ, or it says something like that. The challenge is, is the word boast or to, to, to brag or to glory in the New Testament is almost always used of glorying in Christ. But here, the grammar really is that they would glory or they would brag about Paul. And so translators have gone two different ways. I think the New American Standard actually is better because I think what Paul is saying is, you know, around Philippi, if you bump into other Christians, you would brag about knowing about me. Don't we use brag like that? Oh, I know so-and-so. He says at Philippi, you would say, oh, I know Paul. Our church supports Paul. We pray for Paul. And he says, because you're proud of me, I have an access to say some things to you that are going to be hard to say. That someone who doesn't have that kind of a relationship with you, they may just blow you off. I mean, isn't this true in relationships? If you're proud of knowing somebody and you're grateful for them, Can't they say harder things to you than just a casual acquaintance or somebody else? I think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying, because of your proud confidence in me, you're going to listen to me, and consequently, you're going to abound in Christ Jesus. You're going to grow in Christ. Now, next week, we jump into what the issue is that he's going to confront because he begins to confront it in 27. So I think he's saying, because of my relationship with you, I have a unique access into your life. And what he's going to say in 27 following is, Philippians, you're a bunch of selfish people. And as a part of pointing out how selfish they are, and the call is to be unselfish towards each other, he brings up the whole point of why did Christ come? not holding on to things that were rightfully his, but humbling himself. And so, Paul says, it's, it's necessary uh, for your sake, not that I go to heaven, but that I stay. Because there's some things in your life, Philippians, that need to be addressed. Seems to me I have the relationship to address those things. And in fact, as soon as he says that, the next verse, he begins addressing it. And so, to live 
is Christ. To die is gain. Now, you'll notice in verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed from both of these things. Paul lived a pressure-filled life. But what were the two greatest pressures in his life while he was in prison? To live or to die? To depart and be with Christ or to continue the fruitful labor? Now, how then can Paul say, I rejoice in this? Because he's in a win-win situation. Now, one's a small win recognizing. One's a lot of work and a lot of pain and a lot of distress. But it is a fruitful life. The other one's the infinitely big win, isn't it? <laughs> to depart and be with Christ. And that's why Paul could begin this whole section by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. Because this is what's going on in his head. This is what he knows. Because of God's goodness to him, because of his grace, and this is what the Lord's table reminds us of, every single person who knows Christ is in a W-I-N small letters or W-I-N infinitely big letters situation. That's the way and that's what God has done for us is he's put us in this win win situation because of what he has done on our behalf. So what I want to ask you to do, oh, well, let me say this first, and then we'll do that. So notice here that joy is not a result of lack of pressure. This may come as a relief to many of us who are trying to keep figuring out how to live a pressure-free life. Joy is a result of understanding the right pressures. And what are the two right pressures that should be pressing in on us? If I continue to live, it's a fruitful labor for me to build Christ into other people's lives, to know Christ more fully and to make him known. That's the pressure. Oh, but if I die, whoo, that's a gain. Those are the two big pressures that should be pressing in on every single believer. And to the extent that that's true, then we will say, yes, and I will rejoice because I am in a win-win situation. You'll notice that joy is not a result of knowing how things are going to turn out in their details. But simply knowing, and this is why we memorize that verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is not the way the believers at Philippi thought. That's why he says this. And that's why they're selfish. That's why he's got to deal with that, because this is not the way they thought. This isn't the way that any of us naturally think. And so joy is a product of being in this win-win situation. So you say, well, what about all the other pressures in life? And there's plenty of them, right? I mean, I bet I ask you to list pressures. I'll bet, I'll bet all of us could come up with a list, especially with the young people gone. I'll bet all of us could come up with a list of seven to ten things right like that, right? Relationally, job, bank, right? What do you do with all those? Put them under these two things. Put them under these two categories. All of those pressures, put it under the big pressure to live is Christ. It's a fruitful opportunity for me to know Christ and to make him known. And if I die, if this pressure kills me, hey, that's gain. That's gain. Put all those other pressures under this big pressure. What I want to ask you to do now is to take that little stick figure and make that person you. So some of you may want to draw some hair on it. You may want to put the face the way you see yourself, grumpy or happy. You may want to put some muscles, guys. Or if you're 
older in life, you may want to put them on the bottom now. Um, you may want to make the belly as big or small as you want. Anyway, make that stick figure you. And here's, here's why this is so important, even though we can laugh about all that stuff. It is easy to get lost navigating through just the daily things of life. And uh, before we had phones and Google Maps and all of that, and even today still, to find out where we, people were at, they would look up to the stars, and the stars would orient them. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look up. You get so lost in the forest that all you see is the trees. And he's saying, look up and know this. And so let me ask you just to make that stick person you and to even just process and think this through and even to say, I know, I know this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And even take some of the pressures that you're feeling and put them in there. So I'm going to be quiet for about two minutes here and give you a chance to make some application here, and then we're going to go on to how you help live this out. But it's important to have it straight in our brains, first and foremost. So let me give you a chance to do that. All right, give you some more time. You can do that, you know, hopefully sometime this week. But verse 21 is where Paul just takes what he knows and makes it applicable when he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if that's something you want to be applicable to your own life, let's just say verse 21 together. You ready? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. And you can see that Paul, if you look down at the end of verse 22, he says, uh, I am, or I do not know which to choose. <laughs> I don't know which to choose. Um, was it Paul's choice to make? No. It's not any human being's choice to make. Now, Paul had a choice. He had a choice on whether to renounce Christ and try to save his neck. He had a choice to be unfaithful to Christ. But if he was faithful to Christ, then this wasn't his choice to make. And that's the beauty of the deal. The responsibility for this choice doesn't rest on any of us. It, it rests upon God. But how does God then help us navigate down this pathway? How did God help Paul navigate down the this pathway, knowing that these two things were pressing in upon him. We'll go back up to verses 19 and 20, 
and we'll see three ways of how Paul will experience whichever one God has for him on this particular time. And at some point, every one of us, to include Paul himself, will have the one to be present with Christ, right? Um, but how, how will Paul experience that? We'll go back up to verse 19 and 20. After Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, you notice that little word through? He's going he's gonna to say three things here about how he will experience this deliverance, this salvation, whether it's getting out to live for Christ or whether it's being uh, put to death and then being, uh, leaving this world and going to be with Christ. Three things that he says. It's really kind of a three-chord strand, and all three chords are absolutely critical to him experiencing this. The first thing that he says there in verse 19 is through your what? Prayers. Through your prayers. Part of the reason that he's telling this to the Philippians is he understands that the Philippians praying for him is part of the means by which God will use so that he can keep these things in tension and experience what God has for him. People's prayers. The prayers of others. This is a big deal. And uh, it's why Eric asked you as he began the service this morning, if you have something we can pray for, put it on one of those communication uh, slips there in the pew in front of you, in the rack there. Drop it in the offering plates or put it in the box in the back as you leave this morning. Or the ministry leaders will be up here. Come and just tell us, I need you to pray for me. Tell others around you, I need you to be praying for me. This is what's going on. This is why prayer gatherings are so important. There's probably not a harder thing to do than to be faithful in prayer. And yet it's something Paul highly, highly valued because he understood that other people praying for him had a lot to do with him experiencing what God wanted him to experience, for him to stay on track with God. And it's the first thing that he mentions here. The second thing that he mentions, and the provision of the Spirit of Christ. He not only recognizes the need for other people to be praying for him, but he recognizes the provision of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, within him. Now, interestingly here, he calls it the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the only time that it's referred to as that. It's called the Spirit of Christ in one other place, um, but it's a recognition that the Holy Spirit is both not only just sent from the Father, but He's also sent by the Son. And it's also a recognition that for, Christ, for Paul to live for Christ, to live as Christ, is dependent upon the provision of the person of the Spirit within him. And Stephen had us read Acts 1.8 earlier. And the Spirit will come upon you, and He will give you power to be witnesses. How could Paul be a witness? How could he live for Christ? How could he labor and have fruitful witness? Because of the provision of the Spirit within him. The Holy Spirit's job is to apply the work of Christ that we'll celebrate in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. The, the, the work of the Spirit is to apply the work of Christ and to help the fullness of Christ be experienced by us and to come out through us for the sake of other people. He is always exalting Christ. He's the one who can make Christ known in ways that are beyond us. And so Paul recognizes the need for the prayer of others and the provision of the Spirit. So Paul, contrary to sometimes what we think of him, was a very dependent man. A very dependent man. So what does that mean? He's passive in this? Is Paul just to passively say, you guys pray for me, I'll trust the Spirit within me? Well, some years ago, Doris Day made well-known the song, Que Sera, Sera, which goes like this. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. You can sing it with me if you want. <laughs> Whatever will be, will be. 
The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. When I was young, I fell in love. I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead. Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said to me. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Now I have children of my own. They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Is that Paul's mindset? After I put that song in your head? No. <laughs> no. Now, did he know whether, I mean, he was pretty convinced he was going to get out. Did he know when the Lord was going to call him to heaven? No, he didn't know all that. But notice verse 20 was Paul's disposition, his personal disposition. And I want to say this is so important because of our selfishness and because we now live in a culture that says you're a victim. If he had just mentioned the first two, it would be easy to say, do you know why things aren't turning out right for me with God? Because people aren't praying for me enough, and somehow God's let me down. The provision of the Spirit isn't enough. This third aspect of personal disposition, it, it's either all three or it's none of them, okay? It is really a three-chord strand. But if this third one wasn't here, we could blame not experiencing the fullness of what God had for us on other people or upon God. But this disposition is so critical, and it's found in verse 20 there, where Paul says, according to my earnest expectation, or I think uh, ESV says, it is my earnest expectation, earnest and, and hope. Earnest expectation is a really strong word. Uh, think about the Olympics that have just started, and uh, you could think about a lot of things, swimmers swimming or runners running, but they only have what? One focus, right? They're only thinking about one thing. And uh, I understand Michael Phelps is more social this time because he always said, I never talked to anybody. I just kept my earphones on. I was in my own world. Why? He was only thinking about one thing. That's what this thing means, earnest expectation. It means that uh, there's a looking away from everything else. There's ignoring other interests. There's the stretching of the head forward like a runner at the finish line trying to get that last couple inches advantage on everybody else. And what is this earnest expectation that he has? It's found there in that next part of the verse stated negatively and then positively that I will not be put to shame in anything and then positively, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so let's look at those two sides. Uh, I will not be put to death. Oh yeah, we already looked at that. I will not be put to shame in anything. Now there's two ways to take the shame thing. One is of a subjective sense here and now. The other is of the objective sense when we stand before Christ one day. When Paul wrote to the Romans that he's now in prison there, he used it both ways. So, for example, in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not what? Ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not going to back away from this. I'm, I'm going to not be ashamed, even though everybody else would like to make me look like an idiot. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so part of what Paul is saying is, if I continue to live to Christ, I will not be ashamed. I'm not going to live in shame. I'm a prisoner in Rome right now. I'm not going to let that label me. I am not going to be ashamed. There's also the objective sense, which if I die is gained, there's no shame in that either. Romans 10, 9 through 11, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says this, everyone who believes in Him will not be what? Put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him, when He stands before Jesus because of what Christ has done, will not be put to shame. And going back up to the first part, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul began this letter by saying, I am a bond slave of Christ Jesus. He is my Lord. Not by a, just a decision, but by a way of life. So if I die, one of the reasons it's gain is I don't have to worry about any shame on that day. But quite the opposite, stating it positively, but with all boldness, Christ will be exalted in my body, even now as always, whether by life or by death. And so the opposite of being shame and shirking back is being free to be bold and just being bold and going for it. With boldness, Christ will be exalted. Do you have a sense of confidence there? You think, just get a sense that, that Paul says, Man, Christ is going to be exalted in my body, and I just have a boldness about that. Now, notice that he says, in my body. In my body. There's so many belief systems that say the body doesn't matter to spirituality, or the body's always bad, and somehow you got to get away from all the passions and desires, and when you finally do that, that's uh, nirvana or something, I don't know. That is not the biblical viewpoint. The biblical viewpoint, Paul Wall states here, Christ will be exalted in my body. Whether I continue to live or whether they put me to death and they crucify me or they chop my head off, in my body, Christ is going to be made known. It is through the body that Christ is made known to our neighbors and friends and family and everybody, right? Right? That's why when he wrote the letter to the Romans, he said this, Romans 6, 12, and 13, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. What's he saying? Surrender your mouth to be an instrument of righteousness, to proclaim Christ. Surrender your hands so that they're the hands of Christ to people. Use your feet to take you to the place where the gospel needs to be heard. He says, it's the body through which Christ is made known. That's why as he turns the corner into Romans chapter 12, he says, man, in view of God's mercy, all he's done for me, it is the no-brainer response to offer up my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the things that come in your eyes and into your ears conform you to this world. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll understand such things as to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when you do that, man, you will prove to yourself and everybody else there's nothing like the will of God. Our bodies are the way that we express Christ. It's the way people know Christ through us. And Paul said... With boldness, Christ will be exalted in my body, even now, as always, whether I continue to live or whether they choose to put me to death. The very means of my death, I'm going to be unashamed about who Christ is. And he, I will bear witness to Christ. And thus, he says, yes, I will rejoice. And so there's these three great ways that God always says, when or when. And that's possible because of what Christ has done on our behalf. 
And so we want to respond to the Lord's invitation to come to the Lord's table this morning. And, uh, and His great love for us. And, uh, and so men, if you, well, you're not serving us this morning, are we? It's right here. Um, and so it is the Lord who invites us. It's the Lord who puts us in a little win or an infinitely big win. It's the Lord who says, now how are you going to experience this? Have other people praying for you? Trust the provision of the Spirit. And man, live headlong, expectant and hopeful that there will not be any shame, but that you can live boldly for Christ. And so I want to invite you to come. You can come as individuals. You can come as a family. You can come with a friend. Two families can come together. Uh, I know I'm putting a decision into your laps. You figure out how you want to come. But you come. And uh, if you're with somebody else, I would encourage you to take a moment and pray for each other since that's integral to this passage. You can either just grab it, move off to the side, grab it and move back to your pews. There's some up in the balcony for those of you up in the balcony. But this is the Lord's reminder of what He has done on our behalf that on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he says, this is my what? Body, which is given for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And this blood is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And keep doing this until I come. And so let me just pray for us as we come and ask God to make this a very sacred time. Spirit of God, we pray that you would exalt Christ in our lives even as we respond to his invitation to come and to eat this bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of all that he has done for us to put us in a win-win situation in life. So, Spirit of God, minister to each one of us just as we need it through these reminders of your great love for us. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.